Glad y'all are here tonight. Um, whether this is like your second, third, fourth RUF or your hundredth time here, we're so glad you're here tonight with us. Um, this weekend, I had an awesome time volunteering at the community gardens uh, alongside some of y'all at the city of Burlington and Church at the Well. Um, we weren't planning anything or like reaping a harvest, but instead we were laying down some mulch for pollinator gardens there, which was very different than what I kind of envisioned when we were gonna get there. I was like, oh, we'll be like in the weeds, like, you know, maintaining the boxes. Um, but it was really cool to learn about how the pollinator garden, gardens are a really important part of the community gardens there because they bring in all the insects and the birds that kind of make all the plants flourish. Um, and it was really cool talking to the project manager that works with the city of Burlington there, Ben, and how much work and how many different pieces are involved in the gardens there, such as the pollinator gardens we were doing, um, but also making signs to help differentiate plants and so on. Um, the work we did was meaningful, but it was just one piece of the work involved in tending those gardens. It works that, it's work that takes time and care and thought and knowledge and a lot of wisdom. In a similar vein, this semester we've been looking at how tending our lives to be rooted in Christ, or what the Gospels call the good soil, also takes wisdom, time, care, and thought. We've talked about how when you're rooted in good soil, our lives produce fruit that tastes good, that gives a taste of God's goodness, fruit that tastes different from other soil. The work isn't done just by learning how to like rest um, or like one part of our life just like how the work of the gardens isn't done with just one part of the gardens, right? We aren't tending to just one part of our lives, but we are tending to our whole life with Jesus. The way we relate to our rest and work doesn't just change, but so does our relationships um, with money and possessions, our identity, the way we handle conflict, friends and family, and even the way we relate to our suffering. Our lives change holistically when we are rooted in Christ. So tonight we'll be looking at this passage that Steve read from John 11, um, to see how our culture responds to suffering, to see how God relates to us in our suffering, and how suffering doesn't have the last word. So before we jump in, um, let's pray God would help us understand his word. Um, Lord, I'm so thankful all these friends here tonight um, for you bringing them to Burlington and the ways in which you have cared for them um, in their whole life. And I just pray that you open the... Um, eyes of our heart to hear what you have to say tonight, Lord, um, that you would help work through me to help understand your word. And we pray this all in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So by the, I don't know what that is, <laughs> uh, probably a plane, I guess, I don't know. Um, by the time I finish speaking this sentence, is, I'll wait. <laughs> I'll wait. <laughs> What's up today? Um. So by the time I finish speaking this sentence, about 20 people in the world will have died. Thousands die from traffic accidents or cancer or from other illnesses and diseases every hour. It's a very ominous feeling. <laughs> um, <laughs> special effects. <laughs> yeah, thousands die from traffic, traffic accidents, cancer, illnesses, diseases every hour, and hundreds of thousands learn that their loved ones are suddenly gone. That's comparable to a, the population of a small city being wiped out every day. Like, that's like Burlington being wiped out every day. While some suffering is in our face, um, there are many suffering experiences and pain that we'll never hear about on the news, right? Suffering quite literally is 
everywhere. It's unavoidable. So much so that even hearing those statistics and facts, like that doesn't even really make us blink. We're kind of used to hearing about suffering, especially after two years in a pandemic. Um, and no one is safe from suffering. No matter how much you invest in your health, no matter how much self-care you do, um, or yoga, or how many A's you get, or how many vacations you take, um, everyone eventually will have a survival rate of zero. Caring for your health it is all good, like self-care, that's all that good stuff, but none of it can keep you from experiencing suffering. As Wesley tells the princess and the princess bride, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. We are in a cultural moment where the ultimate life goal is to be happy, for there to be only good vibes. No bad, just good vibes. Being happy is good, right? Like, good vibes, good things. Um, but if we're so drawn and focused in on manifesting the ultimate happy, Instagrammable life of success and the best life of all time, where does suffering fit in when it inevitably comes? Comfort um, and feeling good are the number one priority. What happens when those things you built your life on are just suddenly gone or they're taken away? Dr. Paul Brand, a pioneering orthopedic surgeon in the treatment of leprosy patients, spent the first part of his medical career in India and the last end of his career in the US. He says this on the United States. In the US, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid all pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had ever previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. Like, why is this? What keeps us from being able to handle suffering here? Being overwhelmed or numb or completely overtaken by suffering? Um, Pastor Tim Keller, who's in New York City, answers this question really well. He says, in the secular view, this material world is all there is. And so the meaning of life has to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you happy. However, in that view of things, suffering can have no meaningful part. It is a complete interruption of your life story. It cannot be a meaningful part of the story. In this approach to life, suffering should be avoided at almost any cost or minimized to the greatest degree possible. This means that when facing unavoidable and irreducible suffering, secular people must smuggle in resources from other views of life, having resources to ideas of karma, of Buddhism. I messed that up also in small group last night. So it's, anyway, um, Buddhism or Greek Stoicism or Christianity, even though their beliefs about the nature of the universe do not line up with these resources. He goes on to say, if you accept the strictly secular assumption that this is a solely materialistic universe, then that which gives your life purpose would have to be some material good of this world condition, some kind of comfort, safety, and pleasure. But suffering inevitably blocks achievement of these kinds of life goods. Suffering either destroys them or puts them in deep jeopardy. It is because the meaning of life in the US is the pursuit of pleasure and personal freedom that suffering is so traumatic for Americans. Now he isn't saying that like trauma is not real or that suffering doesn't impact us. It often can. I've experienced that myself. A lot of you here too, like experience a lot of deep tragedy and loss and it's left its mark on you. But I also think there's something deeper below the surface that is happening when like our generation has started jokingly labeling a lot of minor inconveniences as like traumatic, like, oh, I like fell, that was traumatic. You know what I'm saying? Like y'all know what I'm talking about? 
And what Tim Keller is getting at is that we've simply been taught from our Western society to either manage and lessen our pain through coping strategies or to look at the cause of pain and eliminate it. And these both work to like an extent, as do other worldviews, such as karma or Buddhism or secularism, but none of these give a satisfying response to our souls on the actual purpose or reason for suffering. To quote Tim Keller one more time, suffering, Buddhism says, accept it. Karma says, pay it. Fatalism says, heroically endure it. Secularism says, avoid it or fix it. Now, from the Christian's perspective, all of these cultures of suffering have an element of truth. Sufferers do indeed need to stop loving material goods too much. And yes, the Bible says that, in general, the suffering filling the world is the result of the human race turning from God. We do indeed need to endure suffering and not let it overthrow us. Secularism is also right to warn us about being too accepting of conditions and factors that harm people and should be changed. Pre-secular cultures often permitted too much passivity in the face of changeable circumstances and injustices. But from the Christian view of things, all of these approaches are too simple and too reductionist. They are half-truths. The example and redemptive work of Jesus Christ incorporates all these insights into a coherent whole and yet transcends them. Like no one, almost no one I know, at least, argues that the world is fine, that like the human race is doing good. All these worldviews kind of acknowledge that. They don't satisfy like our deeper desire to eliminate and totally fix and heal suffering. The story of Mary and Martha that we're looking at tonight focuses on what or who can put it right. The answer Christians believe is Jesus, that he not only engages with us in our suffering as individuals, but that he fosters a heart and life that is equipped to be face-to-face with suffering. Which brings us to our second point of how God relates to us in our suffering. So the passage shares with us that Lazarus is someone Jesus loved. This is a term used in the Gospels to describe Jesus' relationship with his most intimate disciples, Peter, James, and John. The Bible gives us context that Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, were like family to Jesus. They were like this really close unit. Um, In our passage tonight, Lazarus becomes deathly ill, and Mary and Martha send for Jesus, but by the time he gets there, it's too late, and Lazarus has died. When he gets there, Lazarus is in the tomb, and Mary and Martha are grieving. These are two sisters grieving the exact same situation, saying almost the exact same words, but completely different approaches, both to Jesus and from Jesus. Let's look first at the story of Martha. So Martha is active. She like comes out of the house and says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. To which Jesus replies to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha replies, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha here essentially is giving back Jesus some like good Jewish theology. She's saying how she knows Lazarus will rise again at the resurrection day. But Jesus comes back to her in verse 25 and says, No, I am the resurrection. It's me. He's telling her that the hope she wants is in a person, and it's standing literally right in front of her. Jesus is telling Martha and us that we should grieve, but not without hope. He is currently and actively engaging in our suffering. So then Martha calls for Mary to come out and meet Jesus. And as she comes to meet Jesus, a crowd begins to follow her. 
And Mary comes to Jesus very differently. She immediately falls at his feet. And in verse 32, she says, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. While Martha continued to speak, Mary is completely speechless. They are grieving in an entirely different way, right? Where Martha is active, Mary is passive. She isn't explaining to Jesus what is happening, but instead she falls to the ground and weeps at Jesus' feet. And Jesus' response to Mary's tears is the shortest sentence in the whole Bible. He weeps. Jesus looks at both sisters as individuals with different needs. While he gives Martha a ministry of truth, he gives Mary a ministry of tears. While he tells Martha, like almost like I was shaking her, like, listen, I am your hope. He comes to Mary and meets her in tears alongside her own tears. In our own lives, we can probably think of way more times that we've been comforted poorly than we were comforted well by others. Maybe in times you needed tears, someone gave you truth when it wasn't appropriate. Like, after a recent death, like, well, they're in a better place. That's not really comforting, right? Like, that's like, maybe true, but it's not at the right time to come in their lives, right? And other times you've been given tears when you needed the truth. You needed words of encouragement or wisdom more than their tears. Um, If Jesus had responded to Martha with tears and Mary with truth, neither would have been comforted or met appropriately, right? If all Jesus gave were his tears, though, it would be like, Jesus, like, oh, he, like, feels us, but he's not really going to do anything. Like, he's not really actively doing anything. But if he had just given, like, a theology talk, it's like, okay, like, I kind of have a good understanding, but it's not like God is, like, a close God. He's, like, kind of distanced. But Jesus is never strong when he should be tender or tender when he should be strong. He is the truth itself, but comes in tears. He feels our pain, and he does something about it. Now, if you struggle to believe in the Bible, like, this passage just simply cannot be fiction. No one would ever have written about a Jewish king that came down from heaven and then showed up saying, Here I am, I am the Lord, and then the next minute crying like a baby. And, like, weeping doesn't even accurately capture what's happening here. Um, Our translation says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And others say, like, he groaned in himself. But this language is too weak to describe what is happening here. The Greek Greek word used by the gospel writer of this passage, John, um, means to bellow with anger or have furious indignation. It's a really startling word. It's a lot stronger than just weep. Author Nancy Piercy says this about that. In the original Greek, this phrase actually means furious indignation. Um, It was used, for example, of war horses rearing up just before charging into battle. Standing before the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus is outraged. Why? Evil is not normal. The world was created good and beautiful, but now he'd entered his father's world that had become ruined and broken. And his reaction? He was furious. Jesus wept at the pain and sorrow caused by the enemy invasion that had devastated his beautiful creation. wept at the pain and sorrow caused by the enemy invasion that had devastated his beautiful creation. Christians are never admonished to accept death as a natural part of creation. So Jesus isn't just weeping over Lazarus' death. 
but he's weeping over all funerals ever, over all death, over all injustice, over all evil. The Jews surrounding him replied to the response of this weeping, this bellowing, but see how he loved him. The more you love something or someone, the more you suffer. And Jesus is entering into and experiencing suffering that is so deep because of his great love for Lazarus and for us. As for Buddhism, is true. If you detach from the world, you won't experience suffering, but you also will never have truly loved anything. This is a God who loves so much that he is wailing loudly over all the pain in your life. And he's showing us that it's okay to cry. When you suffer, it's because you love people. As an early um, church bishop said in a poem in the fourth century, God wept moved by the tears of mortals. God is angry at evil and death with us. He is bellowing and he is angry and weeping at the sting of death. He isn't saying, you just need to get over it, sorry. And he doesn't put like a sock on his hand and sing, that's the way the world works by Bo Burnham. <laughs> Instead, Jesus is like incensed, but he's mad at evil and suffering, not at God. He's mad not at himself, which means he's not the author of evil and suffering, right? Nancy Piercy pointed out, evil and death and suffering were never a part of God's original design. God is raging for us and with us against suffering. While this passage is already beautiful, that God would come in truth and tears to us, Jesus doesn't stop at comforting Mary and Martha. He also overcomes their suffering and ours. And the way that Jesus overcomes our suffering is through his anger. This passage continues on in verse 38 with, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Some historians have said that if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus, that all the dead would rise from the ground. That's like how like, much anger and like loud, like that's what he's coming to this with, right? Like there's so much power in his voice. So Jesus overcomes death here, but Lazarus doesn't live forever, right? He dies again later in his life. So there's something bigger that Jesus is showing us through this passage. He's giving us a greater sign and a greater story of hope here, which brings us to our third point tonight of that suffering doesn't have to be the last word. So not only, or suffering doesn't have the last word. There we go. <laughs> um, so not only does Jesus see and feel our pain, but Jesus does something about it. Jesus enters into Lazarus's tomb, going into battle with death itself, and de tells death to let Lazarus go, to unbind him. About a week after raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is crucified on a cross and enters into his own tomb emerging from death as well. The resurrection of Lazarus, which points to the resurrection of Jesus, proves to us that death is not the end. Instead, death is a door that Jesus himself holds the keys to, 
Death is not a dead end that we have to live in fear of, but a door that he controls. And unlike our culture, we don't have to cling desperately to what we have to feel meaning. We have a greater hope that surpasses this world. The empty tomb and Jesus' resurrection prove that death's defeat is the basis for our hope, that all death will be vanquished forever. As we see in Revelation 7, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat on, down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Like, that is a beautiful vision of heaven, y'all. We can hope for that future because Christ has secured our place in heaven for us. There will be a day when there are no more tears and no more suffering and no more sadness. God himself is going to wipe away our tears. And that hope changes the way we live now. As human beings, we are hope-shaped creatures. And by that, I mean the way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe in the future. This means that we can engage with and enter into our suffering with the knowledge that it isn't forever, that death and suffering are not the end. We can be courageous and live a life like Jesus, and we can move towards suffering face-to-face -face with others' pain and loss, with the hope and promise that it won't be forever. We can also weep with others like Jesus too, but we will weep with hope. We can be hands and feet to fix what is broken and also feel the searing pain of loss. Something that has struck, stuck with me since our spring break in Atlantic City with the team at Hope for Atlantic City was something that their director, David, said. He was talking about how, really, to how to like really serve people like Jesus. Um, and it, sorry, I lost my place. And it means often living in a place physically or metaphorically that is uncomfortable, living face to face with suffering. He noted how we're all inevitably going to die and that he could either die sitting on his couch or he could die while serving others. And he wasn't saying this of like, oh, I desire pain, I desire death, but that he's able to say he can be in the midst of suffering because it doesn't fear death. There's freedom he has to serve others like Jesus. He can walk with and engage with others who suffer with the hope that Jesus promises. While suffering is not a part of God's original plan, as he isn't the author of evil, God in his goodness and power is able to use our suffering for his good and glory. He used Jesus' suffering for our lives to be saved, and he uses all of our stories, all of our tragedy, all of our suffering and pain, and rewrites a better story. When we engage with Jesus in our suffering, and we have a hope that shapes our lives now, others will be able to see the fruit of God's work and how we respond to suffering. That fruit will look like being able to deeply lament what is broken in the world uh, because of injustice and to weep with those who weep, fully met with a hope in God's plan to restore a broken world. We know that when we work against evil and suffering, when we move towards suffering to end it, we are bearing witness to what Jesus does, and this labor isn't in vain. Um, recently, I looked up how the pandemic changed people's faith. I honestly went into it assuming that more people would have left their faith and grown in their faith throughout the pandemic. But according to recent studies, about 24% of all Americans say the pandemic has strengthened their faith or religion, with only 2% saying it weakened it. Looking specifically at Christians in this poll, 
About 35% of all Christians say their faith is strengthened, with, again, 2% saying it is weakened. Uh, but the most incredible part of this poll was that looking at the historically black church, a whopping 56% said their faith was strengthened, and less than 1% said it was weakened, making the historic black church the largest religious group that said their faith grew compared to any other religion, like any other Christian denomination, Judaism, atheism, any other religious affiliation. And that isn't worth skimming over, because especially considering that the, that COVID hit black Americans more than any other group of people in the U.S. And the black church knows suffering better than any other group of Christians in the U.S. When we look at spiritual songs of slaves, most of the songs sung were filled with references to heaven and judgment day. Howard Thurman, who's an African-American scholar, says this. The facts make clear that this sung faith did serve to deepen the capacity of endurance and the absorption of suffering. It taught people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that in that environment, with all its cruelty, it could not crush. This enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. Their hope was one that no amount of oppression could extinguish, because their hope was not in the present, but in the future. While God currently grieves with us in our suffering that we feel right now, as he did grieve with the slaves, the empty tomb points us to a greater reality ahead, one without any oppression, without any death, and no tears. As we approach Easter this weekend, we as believers can lament the death of our Savior, but not without hope. We can celebrate Jesus' resurrection with both the joy that he is engaging with in our stories right now, with him coming again to defeat death and suffering forever. Let's pray.